Hello again, everyone. We have just finished our webinar on ESG ratings and benchmarks. And we're now going to record a short podcast with some bonus material, um, a couple of questions that we really wanted to address, but didn't have time, unfortunately. I have with me the same panelists, Olivier Bell, the founder and director of our Centre for Governance, Risk and Regulation and the former regional head European, Middle East and Africa of Moody's, Vitaline Yeterian from DBRS Morningstar, across whose desk all of DBRS Morningstar's ESG research passes, and Katia Chadarek, formerly of BlackRock, who is present giving us the investor perspective on ESG ratings. And I'd like to start with a question for all three of you. We have been talking about certain targets for some time now. You know, a net zero by 2050, ensuring that global temperatures don't rise more than 2% beyond pre-industrial levels. But I think there's a recognition now that we're not going to hit those targets, are we? So I'd like to start with Vitaline. We've got some very different pathways now to net zero or not net zero. How does that affect your analysis? Yes, hi. Hi again, Andrew. Thank you for your question. Um, I mean, the, I would like to start again with these uh, two concepts, which is the first one is about materiality and the second one is about time horizons. And we're, when it comes to credit ratings, the focus would still be a little bit more shorter term, thinking three to five years. But we do take into considerations uh, into consideration this um, uh, evolution, um, and whenever it comes to climate-related risk, um, I, the answer to your question is um, climate scenarios, and there there are uh, a few of them, including the one you've just mentioned, um, and and. The possibility, I mean, the, the way we look at it is, even though it's very unlikely to affect the rating we've got as of today, we're still contemplating and evaluating and assessing um, what would be happening, for instance, under a business as usual scenario, which means nothing changes. Basically, we still have insufficient policies. And that would be the scenario where you get high temperature to the point that physical risk would materialize quicker. and more likely for certain sectors and certain geographies. So you do want to think of it whenever you think of a credit, credit risk as well. Now, when it comes to a best case scenario, which is the one uh, which is net zero by 2050, which is the one everybody was con considering up until today, it's a very useful one when you want to think of transition risk. And, we, and that's something we are also considering when we look at credit ratings. Uh, in particular, when it comes for uh, certain sectors, and and the most obvious one would be uh, the oil and gas sector, but actually the agricultural sector, for instance, is also one that is uh, would be very affected. I think there is no straight answer to your question, right? It really is just about climate scenarios and the fact that we're incorporating these into a analysis. Let me come across now to Kasia. Um, various pathways. Um, are you factoring them into your investment strategies? So I would say that um, the pathway discussion uh, is one that's definitely been on investors' minds for the last couple of years. And certainly we saw, even though we've just come out of COP27, even at COP26, there was the big push 
that Mark Carney led to kind of unite investors and financial institutions around this acceleration towards net zero when he formed uh, GFAMS, the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero. And so I think really it's interesting to see how in the COP26 world, we were thinking about how do we just align on a net zero goal. And But in the COP27 world, where the picture looks a bit more uh, despondent, we're thinking about, okay, how do we now adjust uh, to the fact that we might not be hitting um, the target that had first been uh, set out? And I think in, in that scenario, what we're seeing is more data providers try to develop more tools to give investors the ability to manipulate their portfolios with more precision around this temperature warming um, idea. So, for example, MSCI just this year launched their implied temperature rise ITR uh, framework, which essentially provides an implied warming scenario for each company based not only on their recent carbon emissions reported, uh, which I think spans over the past five years. They also do a forecast forward based on carbon reduction targets that those companies have set. And the combination of these two metrics, plus some other data that they incorporate, gives you a, an estimation, at least, of the um, global warming scenario that this particular company is aligned with. And then clearly you can aggregate that data for multiple companies and you get a sort of portfolio level score uh, of implied warming. So that sounds all very clever and, and very useful. And, and I think to the, to the discussion that we had in, in the main panel event, you know, that, that's almost better than nothing to try and use a metric like that. Uh, I think some would argue, though, that, that it's actually not better than nothing. I know that there's been big backlash uh, to Schroders and BlackRock and UBS sort of using these using this data set to try and um, create scores on the funds that they uh, share with potential clients because they think it's it's too nonsensical to be sort of financially material to make decisions with. So coming back to the question of how are investors responding, I think that they are hammering the table and sort of bashing their heads together to think how can we make better decisions about how to allocate our capital subject to this sort of slightly bleaker warming scenario. But um, the, the, the actual data that's out there at the moment is still got quite a long way to go. Olivier, what's your perspective on this? Um, well, so, so, you know, I, I like the way that Vitalin was, was framing this to sort of two extreme scenarios. One, you know, business as usual. The other one, um, you know, we, 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 we are helping, we, we are achieving objective of, of net zero and two degrees maximum increased temperature um because of course um we may end up somewhere uh in the middle of this and, and may not quite achieve or, or not achieve anything and 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 then and then if you link that to the comments that cassia made you know this is the granular granularity that you need in order to then say okay how do we get there so you know if you have thanks to the ratings for example provided by vitalin and her team an, an idea of uh, the, the potential impact uh, of of these environmental changes on companies that form you know part of the portfolio that the investors hold, then you start to have the ability to help people to direct their capital flows, their investments. And so you, in theory, starve 
the bad players from capital and you increase your allocation to the neutral or good players. And, and then sort of, you know, the logic of this is that, you know, that will help to achieve the objective. And the quicker we can do this, the, the, the more transparent and, and reliable our technology is in terms of getting there, the better. Hence the danger of, you know, um, greenwashing and confusion and pushback, et cetera, and unclear mandates and political, you know, uh, log, uh, log, log jams that we've just seen in COP27 when, you know, self-interests are... Uh, very understandable self-interests uh, of countries that are depending on on oil production to for, for their for their well-being. You know, are obviously not wanting to to commit to things that uh, without a reasonable you know with a reasonable path forward. So, so I, I think that that just points to what we were discussing in the webinar of you know the the need for clarity granularity. And we know it's imperfect. We know it's not. We don't have all the data, but that's that's very much better than nothing. And in fact, I would argue that's essential. And then as we, we continue to do this and we continue to find out more and we continue to test this and scientifically you know, verify that what we're doing works, uh, then you know, between now and 2050 or, or, or later, we should, make a, we should be able to, 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 to direct capital in the right direction. Cassia, did you want to come in quickly on that? Yes, please. Uh, yeah, sorry. I I just thought of an uh, the other angle uh, to to sort of highlight in in this particular question, which is that there's one assessment that needs to be done on on companies themselves and and the risks that they're exposed to in different warming scenarios. But actually, interestingly, in the UK, we're increasingly seeing the burden fall on asset owners themselves to explain how they're going to respond uh, as financial institutions um, to the risks. Uh, that different warming scenarios present. So TCFD reporting has just become mandatory uh, in the UK for pension funds, which is a really big uh, call to action and a, a really big sort of rallying cry in the industry because they themselves are having to explain how they are going to, as pension funds continue to exist and continue to uh, serve their pension members um, in the light of the various climate sort of um, threats and and risks that they're facing. So I think that there's almost a second existential crisis going on uh, that's, that's been brought forward by regulation. Mm. It's a complicated issue, but let, let's look at something else which we touched on in the main webinar, and that's the question of regulation. Um, and I'm going to start uh, with you, Olivier. Um, do you think that regulation of ESG ratings and benchmarks will lead to greater standardization? And, and would that be a good thing? It, it seems to me that it's unavoidable that ESG ratings will fall under some sort of regulatory framework. And I think we effectively are already seeing that to a certain degree. Um, we are already seeing um, action in front of the courts that are uh, seeking to assign responsibility for you know, non-action or for lack of information or, or untruthful uh, information provided to either you know people who are exposed to pollution or to people investing, etc. And so, you know, regulation at the end of the day is the framework that that forces people to do certain things, and and if they don't, then they they get punished or they get uh, they get fined. Uh, or their, their their ability to carry out their businesses is restricted, um, and you know as I said in in the main, main webinar, um, there is a, um, a, a a need for greater order, greater uh, consistency, um, verification of what people do, etc. Now all this is what we need to do, but 
Our regulators, um, for example, the regulators that are regulating rating agencies, are they the best equipped to do all this? And it's it's a very difficult task. And how, what benchmark would they use uh, to say, oh, you know, this company, this rating company is doing a better job than that rating company uh, in in the field of ESG, the data not being there. So, so they would have to focus on process. They would have to focus on, they might kill the creativity that is required from smaller entities. So that's the flip side. Is it, you know, could it be detrimental? Um, you know, you need a lot of, you know, creativity, brain power, inventiveness. You know, the, we haven't probably invented the system that will get us there just yet. We're progressing. But, you know, the, the, the raw energy of all these new players is what is required to get there. So you have to be very careful that the heavy hand of regulation doesn't actually kill all these initiatives uh, when, in fact, the solution might come from that. So I, I can see some benefit, but I can also I'm quite fearful of you know, I've seen how you know regulation applied to uh, credit ratings, um, you know, can can slow things down and can effectively advantage the incumbents uh, because it's very difficult to satisfy the requirements of regulators when you're a very small, creative, and energetic player. Vitalina, are you expecting to be more heavily regulated, and is it something that you would welcome or or not? I am. First of all, I kind of agree with uh, Olivier. That's. Um, I, I think it seems like they are going to be regulated at some point. Huh? Um, so, and from my perspective, I think it's it's welcome, even though it might uh, affect creativity um, in particular. But um, uh, maybe in terms of transparency, that would probably be useful in terms of data and in terms of uh, being clear what you're doing i.e. methodologies. Um, I'm not sure we would see a convergence between ESG ratings. So, because when we talk about credit ratings, it really is about probability of default. And when it comes to uh, ESG ratings, um, these, these uh, different rating agencies, ESG rating agencies, they might be looking at different, you know, I'm not too sure exactly what is the common, I mean, they do have a common, Ground, but I'm not sure they're all assessing the exact same thing. Mm. Final comment, Cassia. Would you uh, would you welcome more regulation of ESG ratings? I think I would uh, welcome regulation at the right moment to the industry. I agree that um, any heavy handedness could end up sort of stifling the amount of innovation in the space. And the comparison that's come to my mind, which I don't know whether it's fair, is almost in the pharmaceutical space. That if we if we demand so much transparency that these rating agencies end up losing their kind of core IP that they're able to make money from and then reinvest and sort of continue to fund research and, and the most cutting edge material, will that end up sort of harming harming innovation um, in the longer term? And then the other thing that came up to my mind is that again the the ESG rating space, though new, is is has at least got a sort of 40 years or 30, 30 years of a track record behind it now. So we can argue whether that's going to be the right time to introduce some sort of regulation. Um, but we've also got kind of more nascent ESG ratings, even in things like the blockchain space. Uh, so you can go onto green crypto research websites and they'll give you their ESG ratings for various tokens and various uh, blockchain infrastructure. And you've got to think, okay, this ESG space is really expanding. We definitely don't think that the regulation necessarily is coming in, in that other nascent space yet, but um, it does give you a useful comparison that maybe it is um, coming to the time where the more traditional ESG ratings need to come under greater scrutiny. 
We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Um, but this is a discussion that could continue, well, for the rest of our day. And I think we will be having more events on this subject in the months and years ahead. Uh, please do continue to return to our website at the Centre for Governance, Risk and Regulation at London Institute of Banking and Finance, where we continue to post webinars, podcasts, blogs, and other material on the changing risk landscape as it affects financial institutions. Thank you for listening today and goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our qualifications, training and upcoming events, then go to libf.ac.uk. We also have other podcast channels that dive into topics like trade finance, financial advice, fintech and more. You can find all of them at libf.ac.uk forward slash podcasts.